following is a production of Word Alive Creative Arts. Welcome to the podcast of Word Alive International Outreach in Oxford, Alabama, an apostolic center for transformation and freedom. We pray today that you will be blessed and strengthened by this powerful message. Just keep standing. Uh, I want to, maybe we'll all should stand now because I want to give honor to this man, if you don't mind. I know we've been up and down all day, but we got a little exercise with worship today. Uh, Alton Carter is a best-selling author. Uh, he is a sought-after speaker uh, around, the, uh, around the country. Uh, he speaks to prisons, high schools, corporations. His message is a message of hope and overcoming from what he experienced as a childhood. He'll tell you something about his story today. But he also has a real message to equip those that are working with young people to empower them to call the potential out of young people. He's labored intensely here in Alabama with us, and I want to say thank you in front of everybody. He uh, ministered at Anniston High School Friday and had an overwhelming response from the student body in Anniston High School. He ministered in Coldwater Elementary also Friday, Friday night. He ministered to the MOVE, our youth movement here at Word Alive, and yesterday he, uh, uh, at lunch, spoke to us and so touched our lives to ministers, social workers, educators, teachers, foster parents, recovery, uh, uh, agents of recovery, ministers of recovery, and really helped us move forward in how to pull potential out of people. And he's here today to share his story and inspire us with the spirit of overcoming. Would you give a big Word Alive welcome to our new friend, Alton Carter. I think I got it. You're on. Yeah. I've turned it off. Right. Got him. Well, thank you all so much for having me. Um, it's been an absolute blessing. I loved my time in Alabama. Um, while I was listening to that song, here's the one thing I want us to understand. Are you ready to fight? Are you ready to fight? For whatever it is you're struggling with, I just want you to join the fight. That we have to participate and sometimes you have to get dirty. So here's a, before I begin telling you my story, I want to um, share something with you. The day I learned to love myself more than I hated what happened to me is the day that I became a survivor. By the time I'd finished high school, 17 foster homes, three institutions, and a boys' ranch, because my mother cared more about prescription drugs than she did her five children. So never got to meet my dad. My mom had five kids. All of us had different dads. None of our dads ever cared to stick around. In fact, on all five of us on our birth certificates, it's blank where it says father. So life was rough. We went to school. We were poor. DHS workers or DHR workers would come to our house, and they would find us sometimes gathered around the kitchen counter eating um, out of a can of spinach. That by the time I was eight years old, I'd been to the doctor seven or eight times, not for checkups, but we went to the doctor to get roaches taken out of our ears. That we went to school dirty, and we struggled, and we were angry. And, and even at an early age, I took every bit of that pain and suffering, and I gave it to people at school that didn't deserve it. 
We were, the, we were broken and, and struggled, and my grandparents and my mom had this weird relationship that instead of supporting each other, they did everything they could to tear each other down. So one of the stories I love to tell about is how my grandmother and my mom handled conflict. So if we were staying with my mom and my grandma got upset, she would call DHS and file false reports and talk about how we were being abused. And so DHS had been to our house several times. And I remember coming in sometimes from school, finding my mom, sometimes holding the pill bottle with pills falling out of the bottle. And we struggled to make sense of this. One day I'm walking home from school and this car pulls up and it's our DHS worker. And she said, Alton, I need you and your siblings to get in the car. So we jump in the car and she takes us to the Payne County Youth Shelter. And we get there and we walk into this room and they take me to this bedroom and she points to this bed and she said, Alton, here's your bed. Here's where you're going to sleep. And I remember thinking to myself, this is the first time in my life that I'm going to sleep in a bed by myself. At the end of the day, I remember thinking this is the first time in my life that I'm going to eat three meals in one day. So we spend a little bit of time there and we go to court and we show up at this courtroom and the, the DHS worker says, your mom's going to be on the other side of the courtroom and you can't talk to her. And that was tough. You know, my mom was as broken as anybody, but that was my mom. And for whatever reason, I saw her differently than anyone else did. And so we get in this courtroom and we're sitting down and they, they have this discussion and all of a sudden the judge hands my mother a phrase that set her back. He said, Glendolovic, that's my mom's name, you were unfit to be a mother and you can no longer have your five children. And I watched them drag that woman out of the courtroom kicking and screaming. And my first thought when I got out in the hallway after this is, Mom, you did this. You did this because you chose drugs over your children. You did this because you settled for men that treated you like an absolute piece of trash. And the next phrase was, Never in a million years will a judge ever tell me I'm unfit to be a father. At eight years old, here's the problem. I had no idea how to get there. Every male in our family ran out. They didn't take care of their kids. They were abusive to women. And so I'm faced with this challenge, this battle that I have to fight, and I feel like I'm all by myself. So what's interesting is I know sitting in that courtroom and, or once we got out in the hallway, I'm convinced that my siblings felt the same way. I know my sister hated to hear a judge tell mom she was unfit. I know my brothers did not like it. I know they were frustrated and yet they never did anything different with their lives. My oldest brother is 11 domestic assault and battery charges, done 11 years in prison, has 11 children, didn't take care of one of them. My sister had four children in 2012 before she overdosed and killed herself. I lost another brother when he was 12, and my youngest brother is addicted to meth. And part of me is, is like this. You talk about this fight that we fight. It's that we know how bad things hurt, and I'm still trying to understand why I'm guilty, and so many of us in this world are turning around and handing this pain and suffering to people that we know is not comfortable. And it was this idea that my whole entire life I realized that I had to fight. I had to fight the demons from my past. I had to fight this genetic desire to want to be like every other male in my family. And so there comes this idea when you realize, honestly, that part of fighting seems scary and very difficult. I mean, it is to overcome all this stuff, it's scary. 
And the only other option for me would be to fight or to stay here. And I watched my family do that. And I tell people all the time, it is not, I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't get a college degree. I didn't do any of that stuff because I'm stronger than anyone else in this room. I did it because I chose and I listened to the words that God had to say to me about who I am. So a judge told my mother, he said, um, you know, you can't have your kids. And they sent us to my grandparents' house. So we get to my grandparents' house. It was my grandmother, my grandfather, my Uncle Billy, my Uncle David, my Uncle Stevie, my two cousins, Mario and Martina, and now five Carter kids living in a three-bedroom house. And it wasn't being poor that bothered us. It wasn't the roaches on the wall. We didn't care much about that. It was the environment that my grandmother was an enabler. So if you look up enabler in the dictionary, there's a picture of my grandmother who it didn't matter how horrible her children treated us, she never called the cops on them. I had my uncle burn me on the stove because he wanted to make a man out of me and toughen me up. My grandfather was this man that had more integrity than anybody I'd ever met. He didn't lie to people. He didn't cheat people. He didn't steal people. And for whatever reason, his way of dealing with things is he would just get in his car and leave. He worked three jobs. My Uncle Billy was this drug dealer that I watched from eight to about ten and a half years old punch women in the face. I mean, he treated them like nothing I've ever seen. My Uncle David was an alcoholic. My Uncle Stevie was an alcoholic. And Stevie is this uncle that had like this huge sort of impression on us, this negative impression. So my Uncle Stevie was an alcoholic, and he started off by being this cool uncle, so he would wake us up in the middle of the night, and he'd take us, or he'd tell like these ghost stories when we were supposed to be asleep, and we thought that was pretty cool. And it went from that to him taking us out in the middle of Stillwater in the middle of the night, and so he would load all seven of us up and park his car alongside a busy street, and when people saw this man with seven kids that weren't his, he would have to say, okay, Alton, when this car stops, I need you to go ask him for gas money. And so I'd get out of the car and I'd say, hey, we ran out of gas. We need a couple bucks for gas money. And he was taking that money and using it to buy whiskey. My Uncle Stevie would make us crawl in Salvation Army boxes and he would put us inside these boxes and make us steal things. And that's where people donated radios and TVs and he would have us steal those and take them to the pawn shop the next day so he could make his money. And then at 2 o'clock in the morning after he'd finished having us make his money, my Uncle Steve would bring us in and set us down on the couch, and he was forcing us to drink his whiskey. And I would go to school, and I took every bit of that pain and suffering, and I gave it to people who didn't deserve it. I always talk about I've always wanted this phrase that helped people understood exactly how I felt. And I got this phrase watching a movie one time, and inside this movie, Box Trolls, it said, sometimes when a heart is broken, it grows back crooked. That was me. Because of all the neglect, the pain and suffering, I felt like my heart was just broken. And I'm getting in trouble and acting out all the time. And the principal, by the time I'm in the fourth grade, I had worn out every other teacher. He decided that he was going to put me in this strict teacher's class. And so this teacher had rules for everything. I mean, it seemed like she had rules for how many breaths you could take in class, how many times you could crank the pencil sharpener. And so in, they, they, his idea is, I'm going to put Alton in her class, and she's going to line him out. Okay. <laughs> I pushed every button she had. I was disrespectful. Honestly, I cussed that lady out. I was horrible to her. 
And one day she snaps. She grabbed me by my wrist. She drug me out in the hallway and she slammed me down in a chair. And she said, I can't stand you, Alton, get out of my class. And I remember looking up at this lady and my thought was, you just treated me like everyone else in my family. Teacher across the hallway, Miss Brenda Thompson, my fourth grade teacher, she said, I'll take him. I'll take him. Now, she didn't scoop me up, but that's what it felt like. She grabbed me by my hand and she took me into her classroom, but inside my head, this lady scooped up this dirty, poor black kid that didn't have a father and a drug addict mother, and she took me into her classroom, and the lady did nothing but treat me with respect. She never called me names. She never made me feel stupid. She never humiliated me. She never did any of that stuff. But if, instead of returning the favor, I treated that lady just like I did everyone else. I was disrespectful. I cussed her out. And, you know, the, the year that I had Miss Thompson, she never lost her temper on, on me. And, and that's one thing I remember. This idea of unconditional love or forgiveness or grace, I'm sure I frustrated her. And she had this unusual way of teaching me lessons. And so I love going back. You'll have to forgive me. I love going back into character when I tell this story about me in fourth grade. Now, there were seven black kids in our elementary school, and there was one on my recess. And so I thought I was like Carl Lewis back then, this playground bully. I was mean. I mean, Carl Lewis wasn't a bully, but I was the fastest guy. And so we did not have a long jump pit. So I picked five white kids that I knew I could beat up. And I would make these white kids lay down in a straight line. And you could find Alton during recess standing with his back up against the fence, running, jumping over white kids during recess. That was my long jump pit. And I get in trouble and Miss Thompson decides Alton's going to miss recess. I was like, okay. Not only that, but would you believe this lady made me sit down by the window so I could see the kids outside playing? So I'm sitting down by this window and I'm looking at the kids outside playing and Miss Thompson decides that we're going to have a talk. She comes in and she said, Alton, we need to talk about why you're missing recess. I said, woman, we don't need to talk about why I'm missing recess. You and I both know. And at this moment, she thought, Alton's got it. And here's what I said to her. Woman, you and I both know I'm missing recess because I'm black. <laughs> now at this moment, Miss Thompson takes off running outside crying and I'm thinking to myself, I bag won't ever mess with me again. <laughs> a couple of days later, I'm playing in the front yard and this car pulls up and it's Miss Thompson. She gets out of the car and she said, Alton, I want you to meet somebody. I want you to meet my husband. So you remember I told you I thought I was Carl Lewis? I was gone. I'm like, there is no way this man is going to beat me up. So I'm running down the street. I'm thinking I made her cry. I know he's mad. And so I get about a half a block away. And I turn around and I look and Miss Thompson's husband got out of the car and he was black. They got in the car and drove off. That's the end of the story. That's it. They drove off. Here's the lesson that non-charged, hateful, racial speech sometimes we try to give people. She didn't give me that. That was the end of the story. So here's what I learned 20 years later. The color of my skin had nothing to do with my actions that the way I was acting was because I was broken and it had nothing to do with me being black. I think Miss Thompson gave me the courage to stand up to my Uncle Stevie. So a couple of nights later, I've decided that I'm not drinking this whiskey anymore. 
So my Uncle Stevie brings us in. He sets us down, and he pours the whiskey. And I said, Stevie, I'm not drinking this whiskey. I don't care what you do to me. And my cousin started saying, Alton, you know, you're a punk. You need to step up. You need to drink this. Quit doing this. And I know they didn't want to. But at this moment, it's this pressure thing because they knew I'm fixing to cause chaos in the midst of this dysfunction. And I said, Stevie, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not drinking this whiskey. And my Uncle Stevie picked me up above his head. He went over to my grandma's stairs, and he threw me to the bottom of the stairs. Came down, stomped on me, and broke my ribs. And I got up at 10 years old, and I ran into my grandma's bedroom, and I called the police, and I said, I told them what happened. So they came and arrested my Uncle Stevie. So I'm standing outside in the front yard, and I watched the police car come over the top of the hill, and they get out of the car, and they go in and arrest my Uncle Stevie, and I watch them put him in the back of the police car, and they drive off. And I'm thinking to myself, I have just protected my family, that it's going to be okay. And after Stevie was out of sight, I went to go back up the stairs, and my whole entire family had gathered on the front porch. And they called me a coward and a horrible person for getting my Uncle Stevie thrown in jail. At 10 and a half years old, I walked across the street, crawled inside of a slide, Spent the night there. I got up the next morning and I went to child services and I said, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going back home. And I had no idea what was happening on the inside. I didn't. I had no idea what was going on. So my whole entire life up until 2016, inside my head, whether I said it out loud or not, I knew the reason why I left that house long ago was because I was a coward. That's what I thought that I wasn't tough enough, I wasn't strong enough to be like everyone else in my family, and that's what I thought, that's why I thought I left. It was in an assembly when a third grade boy stood up and said, Alton, that was courage that I understood what he was talking about. Um, I got sent to a couple of foster homes, and then I got sent to Lloyd Raider. I spent a little bit of time of Lloyd Raider. It was a maximum security detention center where they put, um, if you got in trouble, they'd put you in a straitjacket and put you what's called a TOR room. And so they would lock you in this room. And if you were unruly cussing and screaming, they could give you a tranquilizer shot to calm you down. And so I stayed there about six months. I left. I went to another couple of foster homes. And then I got sent to the Oklahoma Lions Boys Ranch in Perkins, Oklahoma. Out of the frying pan, into the skillet the most racist, abusive ranch dad I've ever been, a, been around in my entire life. He used to tell us that the only reason why the government had welfare was to take care of black people. That's what he told me. There was one white kid in this whole entire town, and I'm a ranch kid. If you got a D in school, you ran two miles three days a week until your grades came up. If you got an F in school, you ran five days a week. If you made um, a D and an F, you ran seven days a week. It was called a trip to the office. If we were out in the hayfield working and he got mad at us, he would kick us out of the truck and make us bear crawl on our hands and feet, sometimes 15, 20 acres. Treated us horribly. One of the punishments why my book is called The Boy Who Carried Bricks was because that um, we had this pile of bricks. And so when you got in trouble, you would have to pick up five bricks and you would walk 40 yards. So you would stack the bricks like this. You'd walk 40 yards. Set the bricks down, turn around, and go back and get five more. This is what we lived with. For three and a half years, I stayed at this boy's ranch. And you, know, you want to know the craziest thing about it is my ranch dad was an elevated deacon in a church. Wow. Wow. 
Every Sunday, this man took us to church and set us down on the front row, and we listened to these sermons about grace and love, and yet this is what we experienced. That sometimes, honestly, part of the fight is helping someone else fight. That part of the fight that you're engaged in is about helping other people. And this is the part that sort of set me back in terms of my faith, if I can be honest. Every Sunday, we came to church, twice on Sunday, once on Wednesday, and not one of those so-called people who called themselves Christians ever stood up to this man who treated us like a piece of trash. And it set me back. I started thinking, well, where's this God of love and grace, and shouldn't we stand up for the week and all these people watch this? I had this amazing thing that happened to me at my at the boys' ranch that changed my perspective about life. And it took a long time. Because, see, sometimes we're in a fight, but we don't know it. Sometimes you're in the middle of something, and you're going along, and you're in the battle of your life, and you have no idea what you're in the middle of. Sometimes it's internal. It's things that we start inside of our head and inside of our heart, and it cripples you. And so that's this next story. 1983, I decided that when I went home for Christmas, I was going to buy everybody in my family something for Christmas. 1983, I saved up all my hay hauling money. We got allowance. We uh, sold wood. So we cut down wood and uh, sold that. And I saved up every penny I had. And so in 1983, I saved up $1,500. And when I went home for Christmas, I bought everybody in my family something for Christmas made a list. And so if you were at a certain level at the boys ranch, you got to go to the flea market. And so he would load us up in the van, take us to the flea market. And I made this list of presents. I started early, double checked it, bought everybody in my family something for Christmas. Put it in that bag. And typically your family was supposed to come get you. My family didn't show up that day. So the ranch dad loads me up in the van, drives me to Stillwater, drops me off and I get out of the van and I start walking to the front door and for whatever reason I put the bags down outside by the front porch and I go in the house and my family is excited to see me. They can't believe it. They can't believe Alton's home. I hadn't been home since I left. We go in and we start passing out presents and I get in the middle of this and I'm so excited I get up and I run outside and I grab those presents and I bring them back in and I started passing them out. My youngest brother loved football, so I got him a book that had all the players, the NFL players' names in it. My other brother loved Hot Wheel cars, so I got him Hot Wheels for his car collection. My oldest brother, no joke, was the neighborhood bike thief, so I got him reflectors for all the bikes he stole from people. <laughs> My grandfather refereed sports, so I got him a pair of referee socks, and I put a dollar bill in between those socks, and I gave that to my grandfather. And I finished passing out all those presents. Everybody got a gift from me. And I went back to that spot that I was sitting. And my whole entire family forgot about me for Christmas in 1983. From 1983 until 2007, I despised Christmas. I wanted nothing to do with it. I got depressed two and three days before Christmas. That's the truth. I didn't understand and I had two things that changed my perspective. The first one was in 1998. I should have got it before then, but I didn't. In 1998, we find out that my grandfather, my hero, has brain cancer. 
And I watched my grandfather grow, go through this crippling disease where he ends up passing away. But before he passed away, I had one of the greatest conversations with him. He's sitting on his bed or laying on his bed in lots of pain, and I'm telling him how much I loved him and what he meant to me. And my grandfather said, Alton, I want to show you something. In the middle of this conversation during the last month of his life, he said, I want to show you something. He took his arm and he moved it over to this table and he moved these envelopes. And he moved these, handed me this envelope and I reach in. At first, I'm thinking, what in the world is this? I rip open the envelope and in 1998, I reached in and pulled out that dollar bill I gave my grandfather in 1983. (laughs) That he kept it. He kept it. It must have meant something to him. And I missed that perfect opportunity because sometimes when a heart is broken, it grows back crooked. 2007, I'm I'm at my house. Now, I tell people all the time, I was the dad that I bought my kids presents. I decorated the house. I was on the house putting lights on the house, cussing the whole entire time. That's the truth. (laughs) I decorated the tree. I did every bit of that, talking about how stupid it was and... And so 2007, my cousin comes over the house, Martina, who was there that Christmas that I didn't get a present. So Martina comes over, and I thought, I'm going to have her tell my wife why I get depressed around Christmas. Two days before, two days after, feeling sorry for myself. That's the truth. Martina comes in. I said, Martina, sit down on the couch. Will you please tell Martina, will you please tell my wife, Kristen, about the Christmas that I didn't get a present? And she has the nerve to say she didn't remember. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'm going to get up and walk out of my house and here's my thought. Of course you don't remember Martina because you got a present that year. Of course you don't remember Martina. Nobody forgot you. And I grabbed the front door to walk out of the house and she says, but I remember the Christmas that you bought everybody a present. And it dawned on me that I had grabbed hold of the wrong Christmas this is the hard part, and robbed my wife and kids of the husband and father they deserved because I chose to look at a Christmas completely wrong. I grabbed hold of that pain and held on to it tighter than anything else and robbed my kids and wife of the husband and father they deserved because I chose to look at something completely backwards. I can't get that back. I ended up leaving the boys' ranch. Well, they fired our ranch dad for child abuse. Um, They brought in another set of ranch parents. Um, I didn't like them, so I ran away. And I always love telling this funny story that I now know dogs have this, like, ability to communicate like nothing I've ever seen. So I'm in Perkins, the only black kid. I run through Perkins, and I see this bike, and it's 13 miles to Stillwater. So I steal this pink bicycle. I mean, there was a clue but stole this pink bicycle, and I'm riding this bicycle down the highway to Stillwater, thinking nobody's going to notice me. (laughs) So I I turn the corner, and I look, and I get about, oh, a quarter of a mile, and I see the biggest black German shepherd I've ever seen in my entire life sitting right there just looking at me. So I pedal a little bit, and then I'm smart. I cross the street and start pedaling, and this black German shepherd runs across the street and chases me for one mile at maximum speed. <laughs> One mile, maximum speed. Now this is, I talk about dogs communicating, this is what I'm talking about. When that dog got tired, there was another dog waiting on him <laughs> and chased me all the way to Stillwater. So when I tell that story, I rode from Perkins to Stillwater 
at 47.2 miles per hour, chased by a dog. So I get to Stillwater, and I go to my grandparents' house. I can't find my mom. My Uncle Stevie's there. I can't stay there. I decide I got to go, can't live there uh, at my grandparents' house, so I go to the Payne County Youth Shelter. They put me in a Payne County Youth Shelter. I went to a couple of foster homes, and then I ended up in Bowley or um, in Cushing, Oklahoma, and it's the most interesting introduction to a foster home that you could ever imagine. So I walk into this foster home, two-story house. I'm sitting down on the couch, and my um, foster parents are talking, and so there's the, the couches were set up in a square with a coffee table, and on the other side of this door was a screen door that had a dog in it. I could see it. <laughs> so the screen door come, swings open, and the dog runs in. This black dog sits right square in front of me, and this dog is looking me dead in the face. And I'm looking at everybody wondering if they see this dog staring at me because at any moment, I know it's going to just jump up and bite my neck. So they're talking, and I'm a nervous wreck. And all of a sudden, my foster mom looks down at the dog, and she says, hello, and called the dog the N-word. And I'm thinking to myself, who in God's name puts a black kid in a foster home where they call a dog that? I'm mad. I didn't hear another word they said. Another, I didn't hear another word. I'm looking at this dog, frustrated, looking at my DHS worker like she had lost her mind. And so I get up and I run in the kitchen after this initial meeting and I pick up the phone and I call my grandfather and say, Grandpa, you best come get me. He said, what's the matter? I said, I'm about to kill two white people and a dog. <laughs> he said, what's the matter? I said, Grandpa, they got a dog. And I told him what the dog's name was. And I, I said this like 15 times. And then my grandfather took a deep breath and gave me the greatest speech I ever heard in my entire life. So what makes a great speech? Is it these inspirational words that just sort of enter your ear and get into your mind for a little while and fades away? This speech hit me to the core of who I was and who I am today, and it changed my perspective. And it was this idea that, that there are things worth fighting for. Most of them have nothing to do with using your hands. So my grandfather told me, he said, Alton, you have no idea what racism is. And I'm frustrated. I'm like, yeah, I do, Grandpa. I know what racism is. I was at the boys' ranch and this foster home I'm in. I know what racism is. My grandfather said, Alton, I was born in 1913. And when I was 10 years old, I joined a baseball team. And when I got on this baseball team, it was an all-white baseball team. And when we traveled out of town, when we stopped to eat at a restaurant, blacks were not allowed in the restaurant. And so all the white kids would file into the restaurant, and I had to go to the back and eat on a box. He said after that was over, he'd load back on the bus, and he would go to a, the baseball stadium. And can you imagine if a 10-year-old kid came up here to dance or sing or whatever, and we yelled the N-word? He said that's what he endured. And at this moment, I'm thinking, you ought to understand, Grandpa. If nothing else, you ought to understand what I'm going through. He said, Alton. Promise me you won't fight. Promise me you won't fight when you hear somebody say that word. Now, that's all my family had ever done. That's what we used against each other. He said, promise me you won't fight. He said, when you hear that word, you decide that they're not talking to you because you're not one, nor will you ever be. At that moment, 
God, not, he used my grandfather, gave me the power to decide on what I was going to say about myself. It didn't matter if you called me dumb, stupid, whatever. I got to decide who I was. Next part of the speech is really what changed me. My grandfather said, please do not let the name of a dog stop you from being the first person in the history of your family to graduate from high school. Do you understand the power of that? That sometimes we're willing to compromise everything because somebody said something to us or there's a situation that we don't like and we are willing to throw it all away. He said, do not let the name of a dog stop you from being the first person in the history of your family to graduate from high school. So in 1998, I was the first person in the history of my family. Every member, minus two others, every member in my family has and is dropping out of school by ninth grade. So I graduate from high school. Nobody shows up to my high school graduation. I go off to college. I check myself into a dorm, football scholarship, and the phone calls I got, my family was convinced that the university was paying me. So they wanted money. They wanted my shoes, and that, those are the phone calls I got. So I drop out about fall break, go back to Stillwater with no place to go, and I spend the next four years of my life homeless in Stillwater, Oklahoma, sleeping on different people's couches. I couch top for four years. And then I was walking one day, and I thought, a judge told my mom she was unfit to be a mother, and I made a promise to myself that a judge would never tell me I'm unfit to be a father. And that day I walked, got a job at McDonald's and worked at McDonald's all day and was loading up the leftover hamburgers and biscuits and taking them back to my family so they could eat. I just kept working my way up. I ended up meeting my wife who probably should have ran because the first stupid thing came out of my mouth was when I met her is, will you marry me and have 10 kids? <laughs> I had worked, so... Uh, But this whole time, I was like, don't get me wrong, I was insecure. I mean, this whole time of having kids, and, and so my motivation was different to, to become who I am today. At some point along the way, I, choiced, I chose to join the fight, to fight to be healthy. And it's not over. I mean, I know it's going to be continuous, but it is so worth it. The other motivation was that I wanted a judge to never deem me to be unfit. So here's my motivation, my two motivations. Kelton Thomas Carter, my firstborn son, was born on May 28th. He weighed 8 pounds, 12 ounces, 20 and a half inches long, born at 3.31 p.m. Colin was born on May 8th. He weighed 8 pounds, 4 ounces, 20 and a half inches long, born at 10.31 p.m. I watched my kids be born. I changed their diapers. I took them to school. I did every bit of that stuff scared. I mastered the art of showing up in church, making or thinking that people thought I was perfect. I mean, that was my goal. I want people to see me as a great dad. So I did all that stuff when my kids were little. Laminated the doctor bills. I have no idea why. <laughs> Just so you know, dads, if you try to laminate one of the printout ultrasounds, it will turn the whole entire thing black. The heat will. Don't do it. I did every bit of that. And now I'm a youth director and my book starts winning all these awards and I'm going to church and every time I'd walk into church, my, my church was like, Alton, we are so proud of you. 
we are so proud of you. And every time somebody said that to me, it made me feel horrible. It's not that they were doing it on purpose, but I learned to fake it. The most important thing in life is to be sincere. Would you agree? Once you learn how to fake that, you've got it made. So my point is, and you don't have to raise your hand, but who had that argument on the way to church this morning? With your spouse, because somebody didn't get ready, but the minute you stepped on the church parking lot, weren't you the happiest couple in the entire world? So that was me. I'm telling you, I mastered the art of that, thinking that everybody thought I was perfect. And I had this conversation with my preacher one time who I was telling him, I was like at the end of just being frustrated. And I finally said, man, I'm tired of everybody thinking I'm perfect. And he put his arm on me looked me in the face, and he said, you are failing miserably. And at first, I was mad, and I thought, man, if I could chop a preacher in the throat, this would be the good time. I mean, I took that personal. Like, how dare you say that to me? And then when I got home a few days later, here's what I figured out. He freed me. That no longer do I have to come to church and try to convince somebody else that I'm perfect. That I can show up and worship. And here's my, here's my revelation I think I figured out. I spent so much time trying to think everybody else I was perfect, I forgot to meet God halfway so he could heal me. That I put on this front so much that I wanted everybody to think I had my life in order that I forgot to meet God halfway so he could heal me. Put you in a vulnerable situation to meet God halfway. And I'll say this, you're only lost when you don't know where you're at. You're only lost when you don't know where you're at. And so once you recognize that there's a God that loves you, once you recognize that there's a God that loves you and you understand how much that means, it's time to join the fight for yourself, for your family, for your community. And that means we sometimes have to bear other people's burdens. We have to lift up and help them. And so when I look back on my life, would you believe that growing up, I was frustrated and I thought nobody cared about me. I honestly, as an adult, arrived at this point that nobody really cared about me. And that moment that I started to heal, I started to look back and I realized that there were a whole bunch of people along the way that did their part. A whole bunch of people that did their part that I was unaware of. So let's go to this idea when I say sometimes when a heart is broken, it grows back crooked. It seems kind of negative in the very beginning that you think, man, that's a powerful phrase and it's, it's kind of painful. But here's the part. Yes, my heart was broken, but it grew back. It grew back crooked, but it beats all the same. This broken, busted heart loves my children and my family and my community just like anyone else's heart. So I want to tell a story I share with everyone, and I think this is what I see when I come to this church. Well, first of all, like looking out in Oklahoma, and I'm going to be honest, you, this, there's way too much diversity up in here. Uh, you don't see this. I mean, honestly, and so it's a blessing for me 
to be a part of this. And so here's my message, honestly. How can I take this back? I was talking to my son, and, 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 and I don't know if, how well you know your preacher, but here's what I know. The, the, the person that I met in the parking lot is the same person I sat down and ate lunch with, is the same person that I saw standing up here on the podium. So I'm going to tell a quick story and then read a poem for you, and then I'm going to let your pastor take over. One day there's this little boy talking on a CB radio, and he said, Breaker 1-9, this is Teddy Bear. Any, anybody out there listening? This truck driver heard him talking. He said, hey, Teddy Bear, what are you doing? He said, I'm talking on the CB radio that my dad left me. Truck driver said, what do you mean your dad left you? He said, well, my dad was a semi-truck driver, and um, he passed away a few years ago, and I'm in a wheelchair. He said, my dad took the passenger seat out of the semi-truck in the summer times and he would lift me up in my wheelchair and he would bolt me down and we'd spend the whole entire summer driving all over the country delivering goods. Little boy spent the next 10 or 15 minutes talking about all the famous places he had been to, all the wonderful people he got to meet, all the food and, and monuments and he went to great detail describing his time with his dad in that semi-truck. And that truck driver's like, every one of you in this room, he said, hey, teddy bear, what's your address? I'd love to come give you a ride. I think at that moment, that boy threw down that CB radio and he wheeled himself out on the front porch and was popping willies excited that a truck driver decided to give him a ride. That truck driver knew that he was gonna make a difference in that kid's life. He felt good about his time that he was gonna sacrifice. But when he turned the corner to come to Teddy Bear's house, there were a mile of semi-trucks that were listening on the CB radio. And each one of them took turns giving him a ride. They took him out of the wheelchair. They put him in the semi-truck. They drove around the block until every person had taken their turn. It doesn't matter if you're first or last. What matters is that you get in the fight. As your pastor comes forward, I'm going to read this poem that I wrote sitting, I just had gotten off the plane. And, and honestly, when you look at the world today, there's, there's broken people everywhere. So as I said on the, on the getting ready to get on the plane, I watched all these people who looked absolutely miserable and I don't know why. And here came this poem. There are broken people everywhere whose hearts are cold as stones, who no longer feel complete and now they feel alone. Our passion fades in time like colors in our hair. We've forgotten, who, we've forgotten who we are, now caught up in despair. Our hearts beat themselves, replaying battles fought. We've lost our mental strength. Our minds are tangled in thought. Time has taken its toll and checked us off its list. Our cheeks bear the wrinkles and scare away the kiss. Our bodies tell a story. The truth won't cost a dime. Our eyes have seen the future of pain frozen in time. Our days are all the same, like knots in a rope. Today I choose to live. My fists are full of hope.
This has been a presentation of Word Alive International Outreach, 122 Allendale Road, Oxford, Alabama. Reach us by phone at 256-831-5280 or at our website, wordalive.org.